Hello, my name is Ben Oden. I'm an author, capacity building and leadership development trainer. Each week, Mimi, pamoja na viongozi mbalimbali who will be featured on this podcast, will bring you leadership principles, stories and philosophies that if applied will elevate you into a position of more influence among those you lead and those who lead you. Greetings to you. I hope you are doing well and are having a good day. Welcome to another episode of the Why Lead Others podcast. I am your host, Ben Odin. Now, we live in a world of rising uncertainty. We live in a world where there's an abundance of information that is impossible to sort through. Add to that the fact that many leaders, including you, dear listener, are grinding, hustling, going 200 kilometers an hour. Simply put, there's a lot to do and very little time to do it. And many of us, unfortunately, don't have the time to sort through information uh, or analyze it. Uh, any information that's presented to us. So what do we do? We outsource our thinking to gurus and experts. Uh, we turn to them for solutions, for advice, for counsel. Now, this practice of outsourcing our thinking has weakened our ability to think for ourselves. And in this complex world, a leader must be able to think for themselves. And so in today's podcast, we'll be exploring the perils of outsourced thinking and breaking down how we can reclaim back our power and develop the ability to think for ourselves. And so, of course, to have this conversation, I am joined by a global trend watcher who shows people how to anticipate the future, manage risk, and spot opportunities. He's the author of the recently released book, which is going to be the core of our conversation today, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence, and Boombastology, Spotting Financial Bubbles Before They Burst. He has, a, he, he has been a frequent commentator on issues driving disruption in the global business environment. Uh, Vikram's ideas and writings have also appeared in Bloomberg, Fortune, Forbes, the New York Times, and a long list of other publications. Um, he is currently in the U.S., but he is no stranger to the continent of Africa. He's been to multiple countries, and he served uh, as a board member of Africa Opportunity Fund. African Opportunity Fund, sorry. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Vikram uh, Mansharmani. Vikram, karibu sana. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, Ben. I'm thrilled to be with you today. Now, wh- why is it important uh, in this age, you know, the world we live in today where, you know, there's AI, there's Google, uh, easily accessible experts, uh, which is good news to a lot of people. Um, why is it important in this time where it's so easy to outsource your thinking to people who, you know, air quotes here know it better than you do? Uh, why is it important for people to think for themselves? Well, look, Ben, I think the first thing we need to think about is experts are experts in a specific silo or a domain. And what that means is they often don't have a full appreciation for the context, for the adjacencies that may impact what is best for you. So for each of us that have a unique life, that have unique circumstances, et cetera, these experts don't appreciate the big picture, the full context. And so mm-hmm. while they can provide general advice or advice that on average makes sense, um, it's not always specific to us. And so we have an obligation, I think, to bring in our own unique circumstances and apply them as relevant. So, uh, so that's part of the reason. I mean, the other thing that I would say is we often run headlong into the arms of experts and technologies because we have this fear of missing out, FOMO, uh, mm. of, of not just a good solution, 
We want the very best solution for our problem. And so we need to find the best expert. Well, unfortunately, the best for someone else may not be the best for you, etc. So I do think it's also important to think for mm-hmm. yourself in selecting the expert that you are outsourcing your thinking for. And then when you do select an expert that you think fits your needs, then you need to think for yourself to understand the constraints and boundaries of where their advice is useful and where it Mm. may be less useful. Mm, That's interesting. Now, something else that was interesting um, when I was, you know, doing research, uh, you say that at one point, you know, you were highly ranked on LinkedIn as the voices uh, and thought leaders to follow and uh, listen. And essentially, you were an expert on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> yep. And then you say in your book that after being honored again in 2016 as the number one voice on LinkedIn for finance and economics, I quit. Yes. Why was it important for you to quit? Yeah. So, look, this is actually one of the things that I would argue is not necessarily about um experts, but more about thinking for yourself. And Mm. unfortunately or fortunately, uh, depending upon your perspective, social media has impacted how each of us thinks. Um, Mm. There's science behind it, right? I mean, Facebook and others have gotten to the science where they understand that the like, those buttons, seeing the numbers go up gives us a dopamine hit. We feel happy when we see more people liking our stuff. And so what I found was after writing a weekly piece I think it had been writing for more than a hundred weeks. So it was two, more than two years, mm. 110 weeks or something like that. Um, and I had been ranked again, as you indicated, uh, the number one voice on LinkedIn, which had, you know, five, 600 million people at the time. It's grown mm. since then. Um, so this was a big honor. And what I realized was, and I think I realized it in early 2017, um, after winning this honor again, I said, what am I writing about? And I would always try to figure out what, what, whatever the topic was, that it would be popular enough to get likes, that it would be popular that more people would share it, that it would be slightly controversial so that this might generate comments and feedback because these are the things the algorithms like and these are the things that, got, that can make you ranked highly. And those are the things that were making me happy. So I was getting really quite, I think, neurotic is the right word mm. uh, after publishing an article I would come back every hour and how many people read it? How many times was it liked? How many people were sharing it? What comments were there? And I would keep doing it, doing it, doing it, hitting refresh on this sort of statistics. And I recognized that the metrics and the statistics had hijacked my thinking. I used Mm -hmm. to write, and I remember the joy of writing to congeal my ideas, to take complex thoughts and try to distill them and share them in a way that hopefully would be useful to people. But part of the reason I think my early writings during those weekly pieces resonated with so many people was I didn't write because I was seeking likes. I didn't Mm. write because I wanted people to share it. I wrote what I thought. And then Mm. over time, I recognized I was drifting. And I decided the best way to stop it was to stop cold turkey. And so after writing, I think 110 pieces, meaning 110 weeks writing a piece each week, you know, these are 800 to 1000 word pieces, thoughtful, reviewed, edited, etc, with lots of links about, you know, topics that caught my attention. I just stopped. I just stopped. One day I came in, I said, you know, this is wrong. It's hijacked my thinking. I'm not doing it anymore. And were were you able? Were you successful? (laughs) 
<laughs> so in reclaiming happy, uh, back your thinking? Yes, yes, I did. I reclaimed it. That would allowed me in 2017 to start a new book project. And that new book mm. project resulted in the book um, that, that you're referencing here called Think for Yourself. Oh, wow. It's actually quite interesting because um, I find myself in that, you know, falling into that trap as well, where especially when you have any form of success, you know, you want to always repeat that or suppress that. And I think sometimes then you, you stop exactly thinking for yourself. You start wondering what, you know, what worked and maybe I can, you know, explore more of that. And uh, yeah, I think in the the film world, that's the world of sequels, right? You make another one and another one. And you you know, what's interesting is oftentimes, and I think uh, Marshall Goldsmith, a a faculty member and a a frequent speaker himself uh, says what, you know, I think he had a book with this exact title, what got Mm -hmm. you here, won't get you there. So Mm. what got you to this level is not going to be what gets you to the next level. And so Mm. constant change, innovation, uh, and thinking differently uh, is critical if you want to keep advancing. Mm. Yeah, and I think uh, I definitely agree with that. Um, There's a funny story that I always find hilarious of, uh, I think, Jerry Seinfeld, who, you know, when he says, why did you quit the show, you know, at the height of its success? Um, and he said, I just didn't want to find, I, I didn't want to get to a point where we're failing. It's like, you know, so better stop now rather than, you know, continuing Push on it. until we get to that point. Now in, in the book, um, there's something that you say, um, you say that fight back against the tyranny of established wisdom, if it isn't applicable to your specific situation. Now, again, going back to the world that we live in right now, where there are coaches and again, gurus and priests and pastors and uh, you know, imams, I mean, all kinds of experts in practical daily wisdom, right? Um, where people turn to for that advice and guidance and counsel and wisdom. Um, how does that reality fit into the statement that you made, right? Fight back against the tyranny of established wisdom if it isn't applicable to your, spe- your specific situation. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah so look, uh, so I'm going to start with what I think is a seemingly disconnected story, but I think it'll help you understand what I was trying to express. Mm. So, I mean, conventional wisdom is usually uh, considered conventional because it works on average. To most people, Mm. it works, right? But another way to think about on average is, Ben, I could ask you to put your left foot in a bucket of boiling water and your right Mm. foot in a bucket of ice water. Well, on average, you will be comfortable. Okay. Well, this obviously we can laugh about because it's not (laughs) on average, but, but we're not there. No one person is on average. Usually, usually we have unique elements of our life. Somebody else may have a contrary unique element to their life. And the experts, the big data, conventional wisdom often takes those two and normalizes them with an average. Well, I'll give you an example that's applicable to me. You know, um, one of uh, the medical professionals I worked with said, you know, Vikram, if, if you want to stay fit and healthy, it's very important you should work out. In fact, I, we think you should do these high-intensity workouts. They can be shorter, but you do that. Well, it just doesn't suit me. I don't know why. I mean, actually, exercise perhaps at times doesn't suit me, but that's a different problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, um, so what I found was I am okay with longer duration cardiovascular exercise. It suits me better. I I tend to keep stay in fit shape, et cetera. Um, I'm okay with weightlifting, but the high intensity doesn't suit me. I don't know what it is. Maybe my blood, maybe my heart, maybe something unique to me, uh, but it doesn't suit me as well. Um, Mm. And I found it actually makes me dizzy, other issues. So I've decided, well, you know, that's their wisdom. 
Mm. That's what they suggest, but it doesn't work for me. So I don't take that advice. I do take the advice that exercise is useful, et cetera, but I don't take the specific advice of what they were recommending, um, but I'll take the generic advice. So again, at every level on almost mm. every aspect of life, you can think differently. And what, what you need to do is retain responsibility for mm. your uniqueness, for your uniqueness. That's what I'm really getting at. It's true in mm. finance. Suppose, a, suppose a, uh, an, an investment professional says to you, okay, well, you know, Ben, we think you should have 80% bonds uh, and 20% stocks because the market's risky. And you can say, well, you know, I'm younger. I have a long time horizon. I think the growth is there. I'm comfortable with more risk. No, 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 Ben. The conventional wisdom right now is you should have Maybe it's 50-50 bonds and stocks. Or maybe they're saying, you know what, your age should be 75% stocks and 25% bonds. You have your own risk tolerance. It doesn't matter what they think you should do. You have mm. to feel comfortable with what you want to do. You can take their advice, but the way I describe it in the book is we should keep experts on tap, not on top. Meaning, listen to them, take the input, but do what you want to do. Mm. So have the information, make an informed decision, but ultimately it's your decision. Yes, yes. Retain control. Mm. Uh, now, something else that, you know, I think using a Titanic metaphor here, uh, many people uh, and many leaders in organizations, you know, want to see the iceberg, you know, so that they can avoid it. You know, you don't want the situation where you're colliding with the uh, iceberg or in looking at it from a positive sense, you know, you want to see an opportunity so you can seize it as well, right? Looking at the future and predicting and uh, having foresight. Uh, but then in, in the book, you write about the futility of predictions. Uh, mm -hmm. Yet many organizations, I mean, you know, consultants are hired, you know, just try to help predict the future or at least anticipate what's to come. And organizations build their strategic visions and everything around these, um, these predictions that either they have made or they have outsourced to someone else. So, I know you speak on the futility of it all, um, but is, is, is it possible to successfully predict the future? Uh, it, not in the, yeah. you know, I got lucky kind of way, but rather in a, in a sense that's repeatable. Yeah. Is it possible sure. to have successful sure. prediction? Yeah. yeah. Well, Ben, so I think the first thing and what I was hinting at in that portion of the book is predictions can be useful mm. even if they're not accurate. And really, that's what I'm getting at is because of the way the world unfolds, because of the inherent uncertainty that we are all trying to navigate in order to spot opportunities, identify risks, etc. It's critical that we think not about a future, singular, but instead about futures, multiple. And what I mean by that is we need to have scenarios of how the world may play out. So you can have mm. multiple predictions about the future. And then the very act of articulating them will hopefully give you an appreciation, effectively a roadmap of how mm. the world may unfold. And as you have that roadmap in front of you, you will be better prepared to make decisions to navigate through whichever scenario starts to unfold because you will have thought about it in advance. And so the problem I have with predictions is often, A, they're usually too short-term oriented. Uh, so, you know, I think one should look further out. It's easier to, to, to identify the signal when you look further out. In the shorter run, I think there's a lot of noise, a lot of cross currents. Mm -hmm. um, so I think one you know, the predictions and scenarios we think about should be further out, three, five years plus. Um, and then the second thing is we can't rely on one vision of the future. 
we have to think about multiple futures. And that is really critical. And that leads you very quickly to the act of scenario planning and thinking in terms of scenarios, possible futures. Mm. Yeah, well, I can imagine how, how how tough that is because, you know, and, and so how do you, so let's say you've thought of six possible futures, right? How do you, as an organization, how do you decide where to invest? Or is it that you invest equally on all possible futures and then you see what is more likely going to be the... Yeah. No, I think what, what you have to do is you have to have, uh, again, in the, the, the act of developing scenarios does not imply that each scenario is equally probable. You can mm-hmm. have a base case that you think is 80% likely. This is the future that we think we are most likely in. But the world can get much better. Here's a 10% chance it goes this way. Or it could get much worse. Here's a 10% chance it goes mm-hmm. in this direction. So I'm not necessarily asking you to change how you invest or allocate capital. What I'm asking you to do is think about the future differently so that if the future is different than what you're expecting, you know how to pivot. You've already thought Mm -hmm. about it. Oh, the world is getting better. You know what? Quickly invest in the supply chain. Very quickly. Hurry up. Let's actually pivot here. We need to hire more people. We need to invest more. We need more facilities, greater warehouse space, you know, more transportation and logistics support, et cetera. Uh Uh-oh, it's getting worse. You know what? We've overinvested. Let's not buy those new trucks that are coming to deliver the goods. Let's not invest in the new warehouse. Let's slow down our hiring, et cetera, and pause. And so it allows you to pivot a little bit. And I think mm-hmm. that comes from an appreciation for how the world might unfold. And, and so one of the things, and this comes from the behavioral decision-making literature, um, you know, we often, we often anchor if we're given a specific data point. So, okay, the estimate for next year, well, we will do, you know, we're going to have a volume of 2 million units. Okay, so now we're stuck on 2 million. It's very hard to adjust from that goal when you have a specific goal. What if instead we said, you know what, we're going to try to have between 1.9 and 2.1 million units, give a range. Well, then it's Mm -hmm. harder to get stuck on something that is either we beat it or we failed. We're in the range, sort of roughly where we want to be, and we're making adjustments. Then when you see it's coming out at 1.5, oh, we need to adjust. Or it's coming out 2.5, okay, we need to adjust the other way. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I think thinking probabilistically is is difficult for humans because it, it requires us to maintain multiple possible scenarios in our head at the same time. Mm. And I think going back to the whole idea of FOMO, right, to where you want to be at the right place at the right time doing the right thing, right? You want to be, you want to have the best possible thing. Uh, And so thinking of that, you know, trying to go back to the whole concept of FOMO, um, what are some of the steps that one needs to take to make sure that uh, they are well equipped to, I guess, manage the influence of experts and technologies like AI, you know, on on their thinking so that, you know, what you said earlier in terms of you inquire from them, but ultimately you make your own decision, right? So how do you, what is it? Maybe is this psychological fear that we have, you know, fear of missing out or fear of being wrong or failing? How, how do we get to a point where we can confidently say that, you know what? Yes, I will have inquired from expert ABC and this is my decision confidently, especially when that decision is really not what um, your experts have recommended. Yep. Yeah. So one of the things I always say, Ben, is that before making a big decision, 
of course, seek the inputs of experts. And usually when you get some consensus around the expert advice from multiple different experts, you feel greater confidence. One of the things I advise all of my corporate clients to do, in fact, even individuals that, uh, that I've been giving advice to, is make sure before you have a decision that you, before you make your decision, that you have disagreement. Disagreement mm-hmm. is critical in order to making a good decision. So I, I forget the exact language, but in my book, I quote a section where Alfred Sloan, who was mm-hmm. the chairman of General Motors at the time back in, I think it was the 70s or 60s, 70s, I forget exactly when, um, he entered a boardroom with all of his senior executives And he said, okay, this is the decision we're going to make. And everyone said, yes, yes, sir, we're going to make this. Everyone's nodding, saying yes. And he said, okay, seeing that we're all in agreement, I suppose we should adjourn this meeting, give us some time to develop disagreement, and understand what this decision is really about. Because Mm -hmm. if it's a really tough decision, it will have both pros and cons. It will require judgment, and judgment means you as an individual should be exercising your thoughts as well. And so, you know, the other way I describe this is in the act of developing disagreement, and a lot of great organizations do this habitually, right? The U.S. military does what they call red teams, right? So, okay, we're going to pretend we're going to run this up, but let's have a pretend enemy try to show us where we have vulnerabilities, Or, you know, you have a devil's advocate, um, which is a a phrase used where you have someone come forward who, even if everybody's saying yes, 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 this person's job is to say no and develop a good reason why no is the right answer. Um, Mm. And so I think once you have a spectrum of perspective, that makes it easier to have greater confidence that you're making the choice voluntarily rather than being managed by the experts. Mm, yeah, and I think it's in Patrick Lincioni's book. I think the five dysfunctions of a team. I think one of them is um, when everyone is in agreement. When everyone yeah. always agrees, that's a sign that something is definitely off somewhere, right? Yeah, that's um, right. It's, it's groupthink, right? We call it groupthink. Hmm. Now, now you speak about this idea of you know thinking deeply, but also you know thinking expansively, um, and so. While you, you know, while there's a great value in terms of thinking narrowly, especially in the domain of, you know, when you talk about innovation, uh, most of them sometimes are people who are, think very deeply about certain things. But to innov- innovation that works requires certain breadth, right? You, it can't just be deep. It has to incorporate so many aspects where it's practical, yep. where it, you know, it, it works in the real world. So how do we balance this depth and breadth? Like how how can we think deeply yep. about something and but also, you know. Because I don't, I don't think you can think deeply about every single thing. You're going to have your area, but also sure, sure. how can we develop yeah. that uh, breadth as well? Yeah. And well, look, first of all, I think you have to, uh, there's no individual who is purely deep in 100% of their life. And there's no mm. individual who's purely broad all the time. All mm. of us are degrees of a generalist or a specialist over time mm. in different domains, right? So it's easy to categorize them as binary, either or, but we're some gradations between, of course, all of us live this way. Mm. 
So what I would say is it depends. Uh, everyone should develop a degree of focus on what they find interesting and passionate mm-hmm. about, and they can focus on that. That's fine. And oftentimes it does line up with one's professional domain. Um, and if it's a problem for which um, you know research or analytics can lead to a conclusion or lead to a, a, a finding, well, then depth helps. Right, you want a specialist. You want someone very focused on this. You know, God forbid um, a family member develops a problem with their brain. You don't want to go see a general doctor. You no. want to see a neurosurgeon or a neurologist, right? You want to see an expert, someone who studies the brain. Now, what happens if you say, "Well, I have a headache," and you don't know yet where you are in your understanding of what's causing the headache? Well, then I would argue if you go to a neurosurgeon, that's probably too specialized. You don't, you just have a headache. <laughs> Why mm-hmm. go to a neurosurgeon? You start with a general internist or a regular medical doctor who might say, okay, let's check your diet. Maybe it's your diet. Maybe you're not working out. Maybe your blood pressure, maybe some other issue. We don't know. So let's investigate. That requires a breath of the human body and the different systems within it to understand where we should dig to go deeper. So you need to have both breadth and depth available to you. If you know the problem, then you want the specialist who's focused on this problem. If Mm. instead you don't understand the problem, you're trying to figure it out, then the wider angle lens is more appropriate. And that's true for each of us in our lives, depending upon the problems we're facing or the decisions we're making, right? If we're making a decision in a domain where we have great comfort, we know what the problem is, it's easier to to rely on deep expertise in that domain. If instead it's a little bit like, well, you know, um, I don't know, what's inflation going to be in three to five years? Well, nobody knows the answer to that. You can do all the research you want, but there's no Mm -hmm. answer right? It's a little bit probabilistic. It's uncertain. Whereas if someone says, you know, is there a, um, are there missiles in Ukraine? Well, that there's an answer. The answer, you might have to find it, may have to use, you know, satellites, you may have to find people, but there's an answer that's different. Mm-hmm. So again, if there's a malfunction in a human body, figuring out which area to focus deeply on becomes the role of the generalist. And then once you've identified the area that requires attention, then you probably mm-hmm. want to switch to a specialist. So in a sense, to diagnose, you need a wider um, lens, but to treat, you need a you know, more focused lens. Yeah, um, that's right. Yes, either that or even to the other way I describe it in my business consulting practice is um, if you're exploring, you mm-hmm. want to be wise. If you're exploiting, you want to be narrow, Mm. right? So explore versus exploit. So Mm. exploration is usually identifying opportunities, right? So you have to be broad, wide, looking across different domains, consider economic developments, technological developments, social developments, political developments, et cetera, to get a context of what might be transpiring. Mm. Then you've identified your opportunity. Let's say it's the opportunity is in um, providing consumer goods uh, or a refrigerated consumer good value chain. Great. Now we've identified this opportunity by looking wide, looking at the big dynamics, et cetera. Now we want logistics expertise. We want to focus in, forget about that big picture. Just now we just execute, execute, execute. So you move from exploring to exploiting. And what are some of the effective ways for leaders to develop this breadth, right? Because I yeah. think 
whatever sector one is working in, you know, that sector is probably affected by other sectors. So, you know, you always need to have that breadth of thinking. What are some of the effective ways for leaders to develop that? Yeah, I think, first of all, it's just reading broadly, paying attention Mm. to the world you're in, right? I mean, nowadays, unfortunately, because most of us consume news digitally, Right, so we read what you know. We get alerts in our inbox. We find the uh, these newspapers, etc., have these articles recommended to us. We get the daily summary, which has probably customized for our interests based on what we've clicked and liked. I think that's horrible because it puts us into these little silos of what we say and express is our interest. I still read the physical newspaper. Why? Because when I flip the pages. I'm seeing headlines on topics I don't care about, (laughs) right? I read the full magazine. Why? Because I'm reading the headlines on topics that are not in my area of focus, right? I read The Economist cover to cover every week. Why? Because I actually want to see what's happening in Latin America, what's happening in business, what's happening in science, which books or theater are getting attention, what are the political developments that 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 are important in the world. And it helps develop breadth of appreciation of what's happening outside your silo of focus. Mm. Uh, now, now, you speak on focus. You know, you say that focus increases confidence while clouding judgment. Now, confidence being a drug, especially in, in the world of leadership, right? You know, you, confidence is king. And I think as, as soon as people sense or smell that you lack confidence, that's not necessarily good. So is it possible to remain immune to this, I guess, to the perils of confidence produced by focus, right? You know, I think in one of your TED Talks, you talk about, you know, hubris, like, is it possible to remain immune from that? Um, And can can we have focus with humility in a sense? That's what I'm trying to ask here. Um, Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting question, Ben. So one of the things I always suggest is that we should all develop an appreciation for being a generalist. Why is that? Because a generalist, and I think of myself as a generalist, if I were to walk into a room of, you know, 25, 30 professionals, I'm pretty sure that in every domain of that, there's people in this room that know more about the different domains that they're focused on, then I might know about that. So I'm more willing to hear their ideas because I think of myself as broad rather than narrow and deep. Now, if I happen to be, you know, a uh, a deep expert, accomplished specialist in a narrow domain, well, within that domain, I really do risk this overconfidence and hubris problem because I walk into the room and I think, yeah, I know more than everyone here about Mm -hmm. my topic. The way to generate that degree of humility is to say, listen, A, you might not, (laughs) right? So you should always consider the alternative. This is why I say every decision you make, have a devil's advocate involved. Have someone telling you how, if you say yes, let someone else tell you no and make a good argument why. So see the pros and cons. Um, But also understand that there are people out there that know more about other domains than you do and that your Mm -hmm. domains and the boundaries of your knowledge Maybe more fluid than you think, right? The people at Kodak, um, which was an old photography company here in the mm-hmm. United States, they, they pioneered film-based photography. They knew more about it than anything, right? And so they said, well, that's fine. They actually had hundreds of patents for digital photography. They never exploited mm-hmm. it. Why? Because they were so convinced this is the way photography is done. This is our focus. They had some people over here. Had they just decided their focus should be slightly defined differently, 
they might not have gone bankrupt. Mm. So for them, focus definitely led to uh, hubris, I would say, right? The, the, the overconfidence in a sense of their own expertise and not paying attention to the changes that are happening in the world. And eventually they were disrupted yeah. by, yeah, everyone else and smartphones uh, specifically. Yeah. Um, Just imagine, the, imagine you have to think creatively and imagine different futures. This is why I kept saying, like, you know, it's really important. One of the things I give as advice to, to students, but also to, to executives, Ben, is I often say you have to read fiction. You have to feel comfortable watching movies and not feel guilty about this. Why? Because if you watch broadly and you think, I mean, this is what fiction does. It gets us to think differently. It presents alternatives for the reality. That's why it's called fiction. It's not real, right? So you want to have potential realities. Um, and so I'm a big fan of, of reading broadly, widely, watching even Hollywood dramas, et cetera, of potential developments. Because if nothing else, it makes you think differently. Mm. Gives you some creativity. Um, you also quote uh, Herbert, Herbert in, in your book uh, on his thoughts on regarding bounded rationality and the unlikelihood of optimization. Right um, now, which one is more fruitful in you know trying to, I guess, uh, measure between two schools of thoughts here? Which one is more fruitful? Um, is it shooting for the stars and land for the moon? Right, meaning you know we aim to for optimization, and even if we miss it, we've arrived at a much you know better place. Or do we just shoot for the moon? Um, and in this case, if we satisfy something that you talk about in your book uh, versus maximizing right from the beginning in terms of do you aim for your target and that's it? Or do you aim broadly and then, you know, you will certainly not miss? Um, what's yeah. the better way yeah. to, look, to approach life? Yes, yeah, well, there's no better way. It depends on you and your individual decision and your choice mm -hmm. and your risk tolerance for what the outcome set might be. So I'll give you an mm -hmm. example. Um, in fact, I was just doing this with a, uh, with a family here in, in New Hampshire. Um, they were asking for advice. Well, you know, we're going to go see our, our financial advisor and they're advising at this stage, we should have a 60, 40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And our objective is to save enough money that our four-year-old daughter can afford to go to college. So we have 14 years or you know, 14 years before she's going to be going to college and we need to save. They're recommending maybe because we have 14 years, we should maybe take stocks higher. Um, and they are optimizing based on expected outcomes in their models. And they said this will generate the highest return. Well, that's one way to do it. But the other way to do it is do something called goals-based investing, which is saying, I just want to generate the, the, the amount needed for tuition. That's it. That's, I want to be able to pay her school fees. And I don't care about any penny above. So maybe what we do is we target the outcome rather than just maximum returns always. That mm. might increase the probability that you're going to have it. So suppose there's a probability of you know, 20% that you'll have double the tuition fees that you need because you're taking on risk. Well, maybe you reduce the risk and maybe there's zero probability that you can have mm. double the returns, but not, you know, increased probability that you achieve your goal, even if it's not maximizing. So, right, so there's different ways to think about this. And satisficing is saying, I just want good enough for me. I don't need the best. Mm. I'd rather have a higher probability of a good outcome than a lower probability of an amazing outcome. Right? Of course, in, in the investing, everyone wants more. 
more, 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 more. But think about the probability you achieve more. And if you think about that form of uncertainty and managing it, then maybe what you think about is the probability of achieving a goal, not just the goal itself. Mm. Well, right, I so like maximizing, that. maximizing would say, I just want to generate the highest possible returns. Okay, well, satisficing might say, I don't really care about maximizing the returns. I want to hit this goal. This is the goal. Mm. And that's the objective. Yeah, it's, it's, again, going back to the whole idea of humility, right? And I think, uh, and, and maybe not humility, but rather, you know, curbing greed, not not allowing it to take over. Because I think sometimes when you know that, okay, this whole idea of optimization, I could I could get to that. Uh, even people who struggle with gambling, right? It's all this money could potentially generate that amount of money. Um, and, and of course, if people have a high tolerance for risk, then they say, you know what? Let's just all in. Let's just go and then find out yeah. what happens. Yeah. Um, you know, I think what you're hinting at is, I call it respect for uncertainty. You have to mm -hmm. respect uncertainty and think probabilistically. If you can do that, then I think you get more comfortable satisficing and you never chase the elusive perfection. Mm, you have to respect uncertainty. I love that. Yeah. Um, now, you also, you know, say in your book that, you know, rigid rules may exacerbate the, and intensify rather than uh, mitigate the very risk the experts are trying to minimize by imposing the rules. Of course, you tell many stories in your book to uh, illustrate all of these points. Um, how do we develop the skill of knowing which rules to break um, this whole idea of disciplined disobedience? Yeah. So the way I describe it is you should think about the mission, not the task. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one quick example I can give uh, for your listeners here is imagine. And by the way, this is a story that was applicable for a person. It may not be applicable for everyone. So I don't want to generalize this. But in this particular case, there was an individual who went to see his um, cardiologist. Cardiologist said, you have high cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And so, OK, well, we know a couple things. Number one, if you take a statin, your cholesterol will fall. Mm -hmm. We know that high cholesterol is associated with higher risk of heart attacks. So, okay, if we know those two facts, take a statin, your cholesterol level falls. And the cardiologist says, hooray, task accomplished, right? Mm. Except then this patient goes and sees an endocrinologist. And the endocrinologist says, ooh, I don't know what happened, but you have a higher risk of diabetes now. And the higher risk of diabetes comes with it a higher risk of heart attack. And so you lowered the risk of heart attack from cholesterol and you've increased the risk of heart attack from, uh, you know, insulin disruption and diabe diabetic uh, uh, potential. The outcome is no change in your risk of heart attack. However, mm. the, the cardiologist in his, his or her silo says, hey, we've succeeded at this task. And the mm. endocrinologist, says, oh my God, we failed at this task. But your task is not about cholesterol. Your task mm. is to minimize your risk of heart attack. And so mm. you should focus not on a task, but on the mission. The mission is to not have a heart attack. And so what mm. I mean by this disciplined disobedience is let's pay attention to your goal, not the goal of the expert and the silo and the little focus that that expert is using to generate the advice. And so when that advice is given to you and you take a step back and you understand the big picture and your own goals, then you can pu push back and say, eh, I don't think I want to do this. Mm. 
Interesting. And of course, you also talk about this uh, concept of uh, checklists in your, in your book. Um, and going back, I think this was a story as well that was used to illustrate this whole idea, right? Where, you know, sometimes it's good, it's important to have checklists, but sometimes, um, you know, if you have a limited uh, or a narrow checklist, that can also be a problem. So, so how yeah. can we begin to develop checklists for different parts of our lives so that, you know, we are protected from, yeah, whatever is, uh, yeah. Whatever yeah. can be avoided, so to speak, yeah. Well, what I'm going to say is checklists can be immensely useful if there are a standard set of pitfalls that recur, right? Mm -hmm. So in surgery, there's checklists have been proven to minimize surgical errors you know, dramatically because there's a process. Okay, first you do this, you do this, you do this, and then there's less risk of something going wrong in a surgery. Pilots, they use checklists regularly. Why? Because you want to check the engines. You want to make sure the fuel's there. You want to check the instrumentation. You want to check the flaps. You want to check the landing. You check all these things. And you make sure it works. The plane works better because of that. Because there are known forms of failure. What's the checklist, Ben, that you would use for investing? Mm. I don't know. Um, What's the checklist you would use for geopolitics? I mm. don't know. It depends on the domain. It depends on the forms of error that can transpire. Over-reliance on anything, over-reliance on technology, over-reliance on rules, over-reliance on experts can be very problematic. And that's really what I'm getting at, which is there's a time and place for checklists. There is a time and place for experts. There's a time mm. and place for technologies. But there's always a place for humans to think about the advice they're being given. Um, wow. Uh, now we are essentially arriving to, a, to the end of our conversation. Uh, yeah. something else that I want to ask is you speak about this whole idea of, uh, the difference between a decision aid and a decision marker, um, um, maker. How do you personally dif differentiate between the decision aid and decision maker? Yeah. Is it maker so, or is it marker? Which one is it? Maker. Yeah. I was, yeah. So the question is a decision aid is an input into your process, right? So, mm. you know, GPS, many people, they turn on their smartphone when they're getting in the car, they say, okay, let's go. I want to go to this destination. And they put it in, they follow it where it tells you to go. Yeah. So what happens if there's a, what happens if there's a day where you've had in the United States, we of course have some bad weather um, uh, more frequently than you do. <laughs> we just had a snowstorm here uh, recently. So the schools were closed on the day of the snowstorm. I was going to a meeting on the other side of the school, the GPS device told me to take a long road around the school mm. at the time I was going, which was 8.30, is the time the school buses usually go. So should I listen to it or should I drive the straight, should I drive the straight road in front of the school? I know the schools are closed because they mm. called my home. They said schools are closed. So there's no, no traffic in front of the school. But the mm. smartphone says go around it at 8.30 a.m. because... I don't know why. Mm. Maybe there's traffic. Maybe a car accident. Maybe, what should I do right now, Ben? If I have this problem, should I drive the short road that I know is quicker? Do I take the longer, circuitous road because the device mm. told me to? If it's a decision aid, I stop and I think about it and I say, well, this is based upon a situation, and that situation is usually traffic at this time that the algorithm knows. It does the probabilities. It says at 8.30 in the morning, this is a spot where traffic usually builds, so send him around it. I'm aware of it. I'm mindful of that possibility. That's what the algorithm, it's giving me this input based on historical patterns. 
But mm. I know the weather was different last night. I know the schools are not there. I know the kids are not being dropped off. I know the parents are not there. I know the school buses are not creating traffic. So why don't I just take the quick road? Mm. Right? If I take the quick road, to me, it's just an input. If I follow the long road, now it's a de- making decision for me. Mm. So it's, that's actually very important. And I think it's important for people to actually consciously make a decision or become aware of what's a decision um, aid and a decision maker. Because I think sometimes we tend to follow uh, the decision aids as as if they are, you know, the decision makers in our lives. Uh, Yeah, that's the problem. It's blind reliance. I'm okay with you saying, you know what? It might not be that there's traffic. It might be quicker to go the short way, but I have 15 minutes extra. It's okay. I'll go this way because it's, you know, at least I won't be late. Um, mm. If I go this way and I get stuck in traffic, it might make it worse. So let me mm. just say, okay, you thought about it. You're mindful. You're aware. It's when you're blindly following either the advice of experts or technologies that I get very concerned. Mm. Um, now, we have this thing where we do with um, our guests, uh, where we ask the one 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 question. Uh, essentially, what is the one book you wish you had read, you read earlier in your career, assuming that it was published by then? Um, and then what is the one habit you wish you had developed earlier as well in your life? And then what is the one value you will not compromise no matter the cost? Sure. So the one book, uh, and that I really, really found quite useful to me, I read it years ago, but I do wish I had read it earlier, was a book by Carol Dweck called Mindset. And it distinguishes mindset. mindset. It distinguishes between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And the essence of it is when you fail, if you have a growth mindset, failure is an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to improve, and an opportunity to grow. Mm. If you have a fixed mindset and you fail, well, that's all you've done. You've failed. It's a disappointment. It's a letdown. You've done something wrong. You can beat yourself up. So a growth mindset is always, you know, constantly learning is the way I think about it. So I, that's a, a, a form I've adopted, and I constantly, failure or success, use every opportunity to learn. And that mm. relates to my, uh, the, the second question, I think, was about habits, I think, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, so, habits. Now, the one habit I've developed later in life, uh, probably not till my late 30s or 40s, but I've done it now uh, pretty s- seriously and pretty significantly, um, is uh, two, two sort of related habits. One is I continue to read a lot. I read mm-hmm. a lot, I read fiction and nonfiction. So blending what I read, books, nonfiction and fiction, but I'm reading about one or two books a week now, constantly. Mm-hmm. And the best reason I bring this up is, or the reason I bring this up is, um, a dear mentor of mine said, asked me very innocently a question. Uh, She said, you know, Vikram, if you're not reading, then there's really no difference between you and someone who can't read, right? Mm. What's the difference between someone who doesn't read and someone who can't read? Well, you've been given the gift of being able to read, read. Read, read, read. Um, and it ties to this growth mindset. So I think just frequent, regular reading and a diversity mm. of reading, not just online blogs, not just books, not just magazines, not just nonfiction, breadth of consumption. So at reading, 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 I think that's very critical uh, and a broad set of reading. Um, and then uh, tell me again the last one. What, uh, the last what is the one value you will not compromise no matter the cost? 
Oh, you know, so one of the things I take quite a lot of pride in is trying to make sure I'm always uh, consistent with my words and my actions. And so the way I describe this is I say uh, often, say and do align the two. Meaning I will always say what I do and do what I say. And that to me is a value that I try to always stay true to. So people can learn to respect my word that when I say something, I'm going to do it. If I say something, I mean it, um, et cetera. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a personal value. Everyone has their own. Obviously, I'm not going to lie. Obviously, I'm going to try to keep high integrity. Obviously, you know, a lot of other values and I won't compromise mm. on. But that's one that I think um, is a little more personal to me. There's, like you said earlier, there's a lot of values that one can highlight. But this is one that I will for today. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and I'll definitely check out the book. I just uh, checked on Amazon right now. I'll, I'll look it up. And, and thank you. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah, definitely. That whole, you know, congruence, right? Saying what you uh, mean and, and doing what you say uh, and living in alignment, word and deed, uh, definitely something that we all should aspire to, to be, especially as leaders. Um, yeah. Thank yeah. you so much, Vikram. Oh, my pleasure, man. I, th- I was going to say the last tidbit. I think it makes you authentic. Right. If you say and and do and align those two, uh, you're just a more authentic person, and that is actually a real critical skill for leaders to have: is to be authentic and and and, and that skill, but characteristic uh, to have is the more authentic you are, the better you are at leading people. Mm. Uh, I know you have to get to another <laughs> meeting, uh, <laughs> which is why I was like, oh, thank you. Uh, but yeah, yeah anyways, I'm uh, very thankful for the conversation. Uh, I was, you know, very, very useful to me personally, and I'm sure it was useful to our audience as well. Uh, thank you for making the time. And for anyone who's interested to read your book, I highly, highly encourage all leaders to read this book, um, especially in the world that we live in today. You know, thinking for yourself is definitely a value or a quality, really, uh, not a value, like a skill we all need to develop. And so, you know, whoever's listening, you can go just Google Think for Yourself. Uh, the book should come up or you can just Google uh, Vikram and Sharamani uh, or you can go on Amazon or Google Goodreads and just type Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of AI uh, and Experts, uh, in the Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. And you should be able to find the book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. Uh, to our dear listener, thank you so much for listening. And uh, Vikram, thank you so much for your time. And uh, listeners, you have a wonderful day. Great. Thank you, Ben. This has been the Wildlead Others podcast, brought to you by Wildlead Consultancy. Wildlead Consultancy is a capacity building firm that exists to build highly productive and innovative leaders. To reach us, go to www.wildleadothers.com.